fire looks extra good on that video, doesn't it? Uh, I had the idea at the nine that we should do like a March of the Penguins thing and just all of us like huddle and then we just rotate out. Uh, obviously, we're having some issues with the, uh, the heat, but we're going to get it looked at tomorrow. But, um, you know, it's interesting, and I, I don't mean to like take like this serious turn all of a sudden, but, um, you know, we have a lot of brothers and sisters that come to this church that live out in much colder temperatures than this all the time because uh, they don't have homes. And so when we're in a place like this, and uh, even though it's only 61 degrees in here or whatever, which is not, you know, detrimental to our health or anything like that, uh, there's over 2,000 people in Murfreesboro that don't have homes. That's almost as many people as there are in Woodbury, uh, the whole city. And so um, sometimes it's a good reminder uh, to have things like this to remind us how blessed we are, how fortunate we are, and um, how God has provided for us. So anyways, uh, we are in the book of Acts. Everyone doing okay? Uh, my voice is like on the fritz, man. You guys are my last service. I'm going to go home and be really masculine and take a bath and like soak in salt water. And... Um, it's going to be wonderful. Looking forward to that. You're the only thing between me and a hot bath right now. So, uh, <laughs> so I'll preach extra quick today. No, no, no. Um, we are in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 12 today. And if you haven't been with us, uh, this is going to be an interesting week for you guys. <clears throat> Last week, this is a, quite a shift. Last week, we asked ourselves if we could consider ourselves to be little Christ's. The reason why we ask this question is in chapter 11 of Acts, what we covered last week, this is the first time that people who followed Jesus were known as Christians, and it was a derogatory term, which meant little Christ, like that they're not quite Christ, but they act like him, think like him, follow him, and it meant to be derogatory, but the Christians were like, awesome, that's exactly what we were going for, you know, we want to be known as little Christ. So we asked ourselves that question last week, can, can, we, can we say that? about ourselves, that we are little Jesuses, if you will. This week, uh, and we'll, this will make sense at the end of the lesson, we're going to ask ourselves a, a dramatically different question, and it's, have we unknowingly followed satanic principles? So last week we talked about if we would consider ourselves little Jesuses, this week we're going to ask ourselves, have we been following things that are overtly satanic? And I know that sounds extreme, right? But again, at the end of this, I think it'll kind of make sense, and um, we'll go down a rabbit hole at the end of the lesson today, and uh, it'll be fun. You guys will you'll enjoy it. So uh, anyways, you should have a notes hand out in front of you. Has everything I'm going to say. Don't look at the end. Don't spoil it, right? That's not cool. But you have the notes hand out in front of you. If you have a smartphone, the Uversion app, um, if you're in here and you have, uh, you know, like a loved one near you, it's probably a good day to just like sit extra close, right? So um, anyways, glad you guys are here. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy the lesson, and uh, we'll see what happens, okay? So I'm going to pray. We will dive into it. Hopefully my voice will hold up. Boy, it cracked big time in the nine. It was a lot of fun. I was saying Saul, and I just went, Saul, and then like, <laughs> yes, and that's what happened, right? So uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to like focus back in after that, but uh, anyways, so um, Anyways, I'm going to pray. We're going to get into chapter 12. It's, it's a short chapter, so we'll get through it relatively quick, and um, we'll see what happens, okay? All right, Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, we thank you, Lord, for everything you've done for us. God, we pray that you keep your hand on us today. God, open up our minds today. Open up our understanding. Help us, God, to apply the word that we hear today. Lord, we pray for all the churches in our community, all the great nonprofits in our community, and God, we specifically pray uh, for all the homeless men and women, God, in our community, Lord, that you keep them safe and that you keep them warm, Lord, and that you protect them, God. We love you. 
We thank you. We praise you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me fill you in real quick. If you weren't here last week, there is a famine going on in the Roman Empire, which was virtually the entire world. So it's affecting the Middle East as well, okay? So the Christians are putting together a relief effort to gather food and resources and money to help out areas that are short on food, okay? So that's where we're picking up. So about that time, the time of the famine, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James. That's John's brother with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Okay, so the face of persecution used to be a guy named Saul. Saul becomes a Christian, so now there's no one spearheading persecution against the church until a man named Herod. Now, Herod is well-known because Herod's grandfather also persecuted Jesus, that he had the intent to killing baby Jesus. So Herod Agrippa, the one that we're talking about today, was hated by the Jewish people. Probably hated a little bit extra at this time because there was a famine going on and they were probably placing some blame on him. So in order to win the people's affection, right? Because that's what leaders and politicians often try to do, to win the people's affection, he thought he would go after another hated group, the Christians. He would persecute them and it would have the people love him more, okay? So much like Pilate, who was a Roman governor, this guy, who was a Jewish king, Herod, still answered ultimately to Rome, to Caesar, okay? So even the Jewish kings had to maintain what is called the Pax Romana. All that means is the peace of Rome, the sovereignty of Rome. They still had to keep that. And the way they would keep that is when minority groups would become very vocal, and when they would get popular, they would suppress them by whatever means they had to. Christianity was one such group. Now, unlike Pilate, Herod was a Jew, so he should have known better. He should have known about the prophecies of the Messiah. He should have known about the history of Jesus and his followers. And so this Jewish king was acting very Roman. He was doing very Roman things. And what he does is he kills a very famous follower of Jesus, a guy named James. James was one of the original 12 disciples, and we know him from being inseparable from his brother, John. Now, James was put to death by the sword. Now, typically what Romans would do is they would crucify people. That's what happened to Jesus, right? They would crucify people. When Jewish people executed people, they would drive a sword through their gut, which is equally pretty bad, right? And so though historical records document how all of the disciples had died, the death of James is the only biblical account of one of the original 12 being martyred, being killed for their faith, okay? So here's what's interesting. Herod saw that this made the Jewish people happy. They loved this. And so after Herod gets praised for killing James, he says, well, what the heck? Let's go for the leader of the Christians. Let's get Peter. 
And so they arrest Peter, but it happened to be the same week as one of their festivals. They had a week-long festival called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And so he was thinking, you know, like, well, we don't want to kill people during a holy week, so we'll just wait till after the holy week, and then we'll kill somebody, right? So this was what they were going to do, and this would have got him a lot of notoriety. So during the festivals, lots of people would have been in town. It would have been a great opportunity for a politician to get a lot of praise. And so he worked it out pretty well. Okay, so he imprisons Peter in the hopes that after the festival, he can bring Peter out, publicly execute him, and everyone will love him even more, okay? So here's what's interesting. If you go back to the book of Mark, one of the gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you go back to Mark chapter 10, James, the one that just got murdered by, by getting the sword driven through, James, it cracked a little bit there, didn't it? When the sword went through James, I bet right before James was executed, he probably remembered a very famous conversation that he and his brother had with Jesus. When James and John were still walking with Jesus literally, they were called the sons of thunder. Okay? And these two brothers, like siblings often do, would, would sometimes argue. And one of their arguments was they argued with Jesus, when we all get to heaven, who's going to sit closer to your throne? Now, Jesus counteracts that, and he kind of like sobers them up a little bit, and he says, wait a second, you guys don't know what you're asking. To sit close to my throne takes tremendous sacrifice. So I wonder if right before they were about to drive that sword through James, if he remembered Wow, I wanted to be close to Jesus' throne. He told me it was going to cost a lot, and now it's going to cost me my life. So here's what's interesting and what we learn. Being used by God, either to change individuals or to be used by God to change a culture or a society, that's awesome. We should want to do that, but we have to understand that it takes tremendous sacrifice. So whenever people come up and they say, hey, I feel called by God to lead or to serve or to be a pastor or to do something great for the community, that's awesome. It's a very noble thing. It's a good thing to want to do. But we have to be reminded, it'll cost you a lot. It may even cost you your life. And so we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it for us? Of course, we know it is in the grand scheme of things, but we have to take that into account. Okay, so Herod had arrested Peter and he assigns 16 guards to watch Peter around the clock, four squads of four soldiers each to guard Peter. And then on top of that, he had Peter positioned between two guards that he was chained to. So like this guy's not going to get out, right? They're going to make sure Peter is stuck in this prison. So as the leader of the church is sitting in prison, sitting in jail, the Christians, the congregation are praying. That's all they knew to do. The only weapon the church had was prayer. So what we learn is this. Calm and mature Christians know that prayer is the answer. See, the church at this time, not at this time, at their time, the church in that time did not have influence, they did not have money, and they did not have power. The only thing they had was their relationship with God and their connection to God through the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, in modern day church, we have influence, we can sway elections, we have power, and we have money. Maybe that's why the church doesn't pray anymore. Interesting, huh? You guys are awake out there, right? Man, we're only like touching the tip of the sassy iceberg today. It's gonna come a lot later on, right? 
But maybe the reason why churches don't pray is because we have money, we have power, we have influence. But back then they didn't have any of those things, so they relied on God. Novel idea, right? And so here's the thing. Though persecution was imminent for all of them, there weren't protests. They didn't do sit-ins. They didn't do marches. They didn't throw Molotov cocktails at corporate offices. They prayed. And they let God fight their battle for them. Are there times for these things? There are times for sit-ins and marches and demonstrations. We've seen that throughout history. Sometimes those things are needed, but quite frankly, Christians need to be on their face, trusting that God will fight the war for them. That's where we need to be. Paul wrote this, we live in the body, but we do not wage war in an unspiritual way, since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, and I love this, and for the demolition of arguments. We have God on our side. What more could we ask for, right? Next part. So when Herod was about to bring Peter out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals, and he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and he followed, and he did not know what the angel did was really happening or that he was just seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to an iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. Okay, so again, I said this earlier, Peter couldn't have been more in jail, right? And only was in a cell, he had 16 guards and then two guards in there, so 18 in total, people watching him 24-7. But here's the other thing about Peter. Peter had been miraculously delivered from prison before, so he knew what God was capable of. But here's the thing about Peter, because he was a mature follower of Jesus. Even if God did not deliver him, Peter was not going to make a fool of himself. He wasn't going to raise a ruckus. He wasn't going to kick and scream and make the Christian faith look bad. So here's something we learned from that. We are to act like Jesus, even if we don't agree with what Jesus is doing. We are to act like Jesus because people are watching us. And when we call ourselves Christians and we don't act like Christ, people notice and people don't want to be a part of something that is hypocritical. So we need to be overtly careful not to act like hypocrites. If we say we follow Jesus, honor Jesus, trust Jesus. So as Peter is in there, an angel shows up, this light touches his side, wakes him up, and the angel says, get up, get dressed and the chains fall off of him. And Peter's wondering, he's like, am I dreaming right now? Is this a vision? What is going on? But he went with it, right? And this was real deliverance. He's getting taken out of this jail. And so they're weaving in and out of this jail, and they go outside, and there's this gate that separates the prison and the city streets. And so after they passed by the guards, and again, I always look way too much into words, it says in the Greek that the door opened by itself. That word itself is, means automate, by itself. 
And that's where we get the word automatically. So if you can imagine this, He's walking with an angel. They come to the door, and this is long before, like, you know, doors that recognize you were there and opened. The gate just goes and opens, right? They walk through. I don't know if it made that noise or not. That was just my, you know. It opens up. They go outside. I don't know if the breeze hits Peter. I don't know if he just kind of comes to. I don't know if the cold night air hits him or whatever. But he realizes, oh, my God, I'm, I'm out of the jail, right? I'm, I'm out. The angel disappears and he is free, okay? So now, though, he is a prisoner on the run, right? He has been out of prison, and now he's got to find some shelter. So when Peter came to himself, he said, I know for certain that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all the Jewish people expected, what all the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. You're out of your mind, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's an angel, or it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and he went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there. Okay, so here's what happens. When one escapes from prison, not that I've ever broken out of prison, but when one escapes out of prison, you have to find some place to hide out, right? You're on the move. People are looking for you. So Peter knew where to go. He went to one of the houses that became one of the churches in Jerusalem. Now, at this time, they didn't have big buildings like this to where like thousands of people could come together and worship. They met in houses. And one of the congregations of the church of Jerusalem met in a woman's house named Mary who had a son named John Mark. So here's what we learn here. Just because God does something supernatural doesn't give us the license to throw common sense out the window. He was an escapee from prison because God had did something miraculous, but that doesn't mean he just like strolls down Main Street whistling, right? I'm free, everybody, look at this, right? He had to use common sense. It's like if we pray for God to bless us financially and somehow miraculously we get $1,000 and we just go like spend it on scratch-offs, right? Like that's not a common sense thing to do. That's probably not the best choice for us. So sometimes in Christianity, we think that God and logic don't combine with each other, but I'm here to tell you that they do. God gave you a brain, a good one, right, for you to use. In fact, the Bible says before you do something big in your life that we are to count the costs. That's God saying, slow down, think about it, use some common sense and logic. God and common sense are not enemies of each other, right? And they are together and, and we're to use common sense. It's also okay when we read the Bible to laugh sometimes. There are funny parts of the Bible. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's a donkey that talks. I mean, like, 
that's crazy and that's interesting and we can laugh at that. At this part, I think it's funny, maybe you don't, but Peter, who's like on the run from the law, right? Knocking on the door, the servant sees and she's like, awesome, Peter's set free. But instead of opening the door, she just runs inside and leaves him there, right? And so he's like, uh, okay, you know, and he's like knocking on the door more. And she runs inside and she tells everyone about it and they don't believe her. Now, it's important to acknowledge that the Bible has some humorous parts for two reasons. One, these people were real people. I think we often think that biblical people like never laughed, right? They're always just like hanging out with God and like, like focused all the time, never doing anything like casual or just, you know, funny. But, but they were normal people like us. The other thing is it's important for us to know that God has a sense of humor, you can look around at some of the people in this room, right? And just be like, yeah, awesome, God. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there are times when it's just good to acknowledge that God is not anti-fun, right? And I think some people have that perception of the Christian faith. Well, they just never have fun, right? They just whip their backs every time they sin and like, you know, walk with their eyes down. That's not how it is. I mean, we can actually have a good time in our faith. And so she runs inside, and the others are praying. And she says, hey, Peter is out there. And they literally say, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Now, this, this, I also find this funny. In ancient Jewish culture, they believed everyone had a guardian angel that looked like them. So not only did everyone have a guardian angel, your guardian angel looked like you. So they called Rhoda crazy and they said, no, it's just his angel that looks like him because that's a lot less crazy, right? So... It's not Peter, it's just his doppelganger angel that's knocking at the gate. <laughs> so they have this conversation and it's funny, and I don't mean to step on anyone's toes theologically here today, but the Bible is not very clear on guardian angels. We often talk about guardian angels. There's no specific instances in the Bible where it tells us that that's a real thing. But again, that's neither here nor there. It's a minor thing, but it's something interesting to talk about. So again, we flash back out to Peter. Like as they're having this conversation about doppelganger angels, you know, he's outside still knocking on the, door, on the door, hoping that no one arrests him. So they finally let him in. He comes in and they're like, oh, it is Peter. And so Peter says he has to motion them with his hands. He's like, shh, be quiet, please, right? Let me tell you how I got out of prison. And so he starts to tell them how he got out. Not just that, he says, listen, tell James that I have gotten out. This is obviously not the James that was killed. That was the brother of John. This is the brother of Jesus, right? James, Jesus's brother, who happened to be one of the pastors of the church of Jerusalem. They think somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 people that James was the pastor over, and he wanted him to know what was going on. Okay, so the next morning rolls around. King Herod shows up at the jail, starts interrogating the guards, where is Peter? There was 18 of you. There says it, man, sorry. There was 16 of them that were executed, but there was 18 men in total watching Peter. Now in Roman culture, here's what happened. If you were a prison guard and someone escaped on your watch, you had to take their sentence. In this instance, there was 16 men watching a man who had a death sentence. So when he escaped, all 16 of them were executed the way Peter would have been executed. Now, here's what else is interesting about this, and this is going to lead us into the next part and then lead us into our conclusion. Herod was not a Roman. Herod was a Jew. 
So Herod could have had mercy. He could have had mercy on these 16 guards, but he didn't. He acted like a Roman, a Caesar. Now, what's interesting about that is this. This Jewish man who should have known the true God adopted the culture of the world around him. And because he adopted the culture of the world around him, he was selfish and he was brutal, just like the world around him, okay? And that's going to lead us into this happy slide, right? It's going to lead us into this next part about Herod, right? Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together, they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, let me pause there for a second. I often recommend biblical names for people when they're pregnant. Um, If you're having a boy, and if you name it Blastus, that kid's going to be in charge of something. (laughs) I mean, look at this name, right? Blastus? Look at the next sentence. Who was in charge of the king's bedroom, right? They asked... (laughs) They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On the appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. At once, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who is called Mark. So the king didn't have any more time to focus on Peter. There were bigger fish to fry. If you were not here last week, there was a famine going on. This isn't good for a politician, right? So this this king went up north to an area that was supplied or supposed to be supplied with food from his area. So he goes up there to smooth things over, and the mediator that he meets with is a guy named Blastus. Now, whatever Herod said to Blastus convinced him that he was going to do the right thing. So he probably said, don't worry, we're going to get you food, I'm going to take care of you, everything is going to be all right. So Blastus throws a public party for King Herod, He invites all these people, they bring him out, and he gives this very Roman address. Again, he's acting very much like a Roman Caesar. And so again, we have a Jewish king who is acting like a Roman Caesar. And like the Romans would typically do with their Caesars, they called him a god. They said, this is not a man, this is a god. And the problem with that was, there's lots of problems with that. The biggest one though, is a man who knew who the true God was, did not deny it. He accepted the praise. Now I made this orange because a lot of us struggle with this. The praise of people was just way too much for him to resist. This is one of our biggest problems. We are so concerned with what people think about us that sometimes we suppress the truth because we're so much more concerned about how people perceive us. The praise of mankind is just way too much for us to say no to. So, because he did not deny deity, because he did not deny being a god, It says that the Lord struck him down. Now, we've seen angels strike twice in this chapter. Once to liberate a Christian man out of jail, 
And then the second time, to strike down an arrogant murderer. So we learn two things from that. One, God is the God of salvation and deliverance. God is also the God of judgment, and he will not be mocked. If you go back into historical records, not biblical, but Jewish historical records, a man named Josephus, who kept an account of what was going on at this time, he recorded that King Herod did in fact die. It wasn't an instant death, but he had worms. He was struck with worms and died an agonizing death over five days at the young age of 54. And so it did in fact happen. This lines up with history that Herod did die a death and it was by worms. And so what we see is this. We see that this arrogant man who claimed to be a God or didn't turn down the fact that people called him a God was struck down. And what happens to the church he was persecuting? Keeps steamrolling right ahead, right? And so it keeps moving forward. The church picks up steam so much so that we're going to see in the next couple of chapters, Antioch, not Jerusalem, but Antioch is going to become a launching pad for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. You're going to go to the ends of the earth and I'm going to be with you. And we're going to start to see that happen in the next couple of chapters. Exactly what Jesus predicted would happen. Okay, so let's go down the rabbit hole. So we end this chapter with a man who people claimed was a God. And I know all of you in this room are right now saying, well, I've done a lot of bad stuff, but I've never claimed to be a God. Well, let me challenge you on that a little bit. Whenever we live a life that is all about ourselves, that we don't think that there are any rules that pertain to us, when we become self-serving and we don't think that anyone can tell us what to do with our bodies or our futures or anything like that, what we are essentially doing is we are saying that we are the rule makers. We are, in other words, claiming to be a God. When we do this, and we do this all the time, when we do this, we cross a threshold into a very extreme evil. Now, let me tell you what this is. When one starts to think that they are a God, that, they, that there is nothing above us, there is no authority bigger than self, when we start to do that, that is the, the, the fundamental bedrock of satanic thought, right? Okay, I know you think that sounds crazy. Let me tell you biblically where that comes from. If you go into Genesis chapter 3, when Satan showed up and Eve is looking at a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does Satan say to her? He doesn't slither up and be like, hey, worship me. I'm a lot cooler than Jesus, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, worship me, bow down to me like I'm the devil, right? You know, like bow down. That's not what Satanism is. Satan looks at Eve and says, did God say that you couldn't be like him? Did he really say that? If you eat from that tree, you will be like a god. That's what he says. You will have the knowledge of good and evil. You will be something bigger than what you are. You will be equal with him. That's the bedrock, the core of Satanism. Not for you to worship some horned devil and have like a pentagram on your shirt and like going around listening to like, you know, Swedish death metal. That's not what Satanism is. Satanism is us believing that we are in control, that we are our own gods. So not only do we do that in culture, man, I was watching YouTube this morning and there was a commercial for uh, American Eagle, I guess, because no one's buying that anymore. There's this commercial for American Eagle that says, give me what I want. That's their new slogan right now. We have become the center of the universe. Not only have we done that in our culture, crossed this threshold of extreme blasphemy to God, 
Not only have we done that, but we've become a culture that is amazing at making little gods out of everything. We make gods out of money. We make gods out of material goods. We make gods out of sports. We make gods out of relationships. We make gods out of sex and drugs. And we have made gods out of anything. Corey, you're, you're just nuts. If you look at how we spend our time, money, and energy, that is what we worship. And if you look at our culture, we worship all kinds of things. And so what happens to that is in making all these mini gods, we're, we're the God, and then we make all these mini gods, we eventually become enslaved to those things. We become self-serving and we become enslaved to our culture. God forbid we're not in step with fashion or that we're not on Facebook all the time or that everyone doesn't know what we're eating for breakfast on Instagram or whatever the case may be. We have this fast coming up at the beginning of the year in January. We do a fast every year. And all the time, people start the fast and they're like, yeah, yeah. And then like, I don't know, like some TV show comes out on Netflix, right? And they don't even do it in installments now. It's in one day. So everyone can binge and like, you know, neglect their family and watch this show. And we become enslaved by our own culture. Think about it. We become self-serving. We become enslaved to culture. And then we become brutal. Well, what do you mean by that? Tis the season, right? Tis the season when we kick down doors of stores, trample over old ladies so we can get to a, a TV that we're going to throw away in five years. Yeah, screw Thanksgiving, right? It's not even a holiday anymore. We've replaced that with shopping. And we've become cold-blooded in it. God forbid someone stand between me and whatever piece of junk that is the hot topic this year, right? We've become brutal, cold-blooded, fixated on things. It's all about us. Let's go further, right? We're already in the deep end. If you get into what is satanic thought, and I'm not making this up, this is from Satanists, right? If you get into satanic thought, the ultimate bedrock of Satanism is this phrase. This phrase was said by a man named Aleister Crowley, now, Aleister Crowley died in the 1940s. Very, very famous man. For you Black Sabbath fans, there's a song called Mr. Crowley. It's about him. More rock stars have this tattooed on their body than virtually anything else. They said he's the most sung about man in music in the history of music, Mr. Crowley, Aleister Crowley. He came up with a phrase that says, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. Let me, let me translate that in our modern day vernacular because he wrote it about 100 years ago. Do what you want to do. That's the only law you need to worry about. That is the fundamental basis of Satanism. In fact, if you buy a black Bible written by another happy fellow named Anton Zander LeVay, and I don't recommend you buy that, the first thing in the Satanic Bible when you open it up is it has a quote by Aleister Crowley, do what you want to do. This is the fundamental bedrock of Satanic thought. Now, let that sit in for a second. I don't know if this sounds like our culture at all, but let me add a little bit more to it. If you get onto the Satanic website, or if you, again, read the Satanic Bible, they have nine pillars or principles of satanic thought. None of them have anything to do with worshiping the devil. Here's three of them. Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. If our culture is anything, we are indulgent. We are decadent. Abstinence, this, this word is interesting. In our culture right now, in Christian culture, mind you, 95% of all people lose their virginity before they're married. We're a culture, even in Christianity, where abstinence is completely foreign to us. It's 5% of the population. We indulge in everything. We eat too much. We drink too much. We watch too much television. 
We do everything too much. We indulge. And we have an entire culture that says, do it more. Don't let anyone tell you to not have sex with these people or not go to these places or not spend your money how you want to. You don't need any authority over you telling you to stop. Indulge. Take, take, take. Another satanic principle is this. Be kind only to people who have deserved it and do not waste your time with people that do not deserve it. That's a satanic thought. I can't tell you how many times Christians have come up to me. Well, I'm not, I'm not gonna forgive them. They've been mean to me. I'm not gonna be nice to them. They haven't been nice to me. And I'm like, wow, you sound a lot like the devil right now. I'll show them respect when they show me respect. Okay. And so our culture will be kind to people that have same political views as us. We'll be kind to people that look like us and talk like us. And as long as they don't cross our paths or offend me, I will be kind to them. But if they haven't deserved my kindness, I will not show them my kindness. It's a satanic principle. Another one of the nine principles that I want to show you, Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. Again, our culture, right? If someone pushes you, you don't take it, right? You don't humble yourself. You shove back. Come back harder, right? How many pop culture songs do we have? I'm not going to be walked on. I'm not going to be stepped on. I'm not going to let anyone tell me what to do. If anyone hits me, I'm going to hit them back. It's our culture. So when we look at this, guys, any of you who are easily offended, here comes your trigger. You can replace satanic right there with American, and it almost works. I say almost. I think it works. We are a culture right now. This says, do what you want to do and no one can tell you differently. It is my life to live. It's my body. It's what I choose to do. It's my sexual preferences. It's, it's, it's what I want to watch. It's what I want to listen to. It is my rules and my regulations. I do as I want and that's the law that I follow. We are indulgent. We do whatever we want as much as we want. <laughs> we have a porn industry that is $13 billion a year. They say somewhere in the neighborhood of half of the pastors that you've met are addicted to pornography. We're indulgent even within the church. We throw more food away than any other country. Like we are so overindulgent. We're so over the top. We're so decadent. Again, we have a culture in the United States. Yeah, we're kind to people as long as they agree with us. But if they don't, boy, we're going to light them up. They don't deserve our love. They don't deserve our time. And again, if someone pushes me, I'm not going to be humble and step back like Jesus said. I'm going to strike back. I'm going to make sure I shove you harder than you shove me. Now, it's interesting. Why do we need the Holy Spirit of God? Because every single one of us in this room is prone to go down that path if we're not full of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us in this room can easily start to make ourselves a God and follow the gods of this world if we are not full of the true God. And if we are not full of the Holy Spirit of God and we are left to our own devices, mark my words, like our buddy Herod today, we will self-destruct. Not only will we self-destruct, but Jesus says in the book of Matthew that if we are not followers of him, we will be held accountable for every word and deed. Guys, and I know this time of year, like I should have like fake snow and like, you know, snowman's like telling you everything's okay. And I know that's what churches do this time of year, but I love you guys too much to gloss over the word of God just for the sake of everyone like smiling today. And we need to look at ourselves and honestly ask ourselves, if we call ourselves little Christs, 
If we call ourselves Christians, and if we look at what satanic thought and Christian thought looks like, if we're honest with ourselves, do we look more like Jesus or do we look more like the devil? In this time of year that's supposed to be all about Christ, right? That's almost laughable. Who do we look more like in our culture? Who do we look more like as, as individuals? What philosophy do we adhere to? Do we, to, do we adhere to the teachings of the Word of God, right? To be sober-minded, to be moderate in everything we do, to be peace-loving people, to be kind, to be gentle, to be forgiving. All the principles that this Word tells us, do we adhere to that? Or do we adhere to the self-serving manifesto of the world, which is do what you want to do and don't let anyone tell you otherwise? And if that is our philosophy, it is satanic. I know that sounds extreme, but that's exactly what it is. It is not of Christ. So here is my, my hope for you. And I know I say it almost every week, and you, probably, you guys probably get sick of hearing it, and you probably think about going to other churches that are just, you know, just teach you a happier message all the time. But what I encourage you to do is before we take communion today, you should ask God, audibly ask God, hit your knees or find a time to, to bow your head or something and ask God, God, if there is anything inside of me that is not of you, if there are any behaviors or choices, if I am selfish, if I, if I am indulgent, if I am rebellious or if I am you know, vengeful, whatever these things are, God, show it to me. Guys, because here's our thing. We do not want anything separating us from our healthy relationship with God because one day we're going to be held accountable for that. And I love you. And more than, than your, your happiness right now in this moment, I want you to be content with Christ forever, forever. So we need to get in the habit of humbling ourselves and saying, God, if there's anything in me, if there's any dark corners of my soul, my heart, expose those things, God. Let me ask for forgiveness. And here's the beautiful thing, guys. God forgives you instantly. We can take communion, the body and blood of Jesus we can take this and remember that even when we were at our worst, even when we were at our most rebellious and selfish or cold-hearted or whatever we were, when we were at our worst, Jesus still loves us. There'll be people up here to pray for you. Again, there'll be communion. Please do not miss an opportunity to just ask God to examine you. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, God, if there's anyone in this room who is, who is not a Christian, they're not a believer, I pray, Lord, that they felt welcome today, that they felt invited, and that they'll come back and, and just keep an open mind. Lord, for the believers in this room, for people who consider themselves to be little Christs, Christians, Father, I first and foremost pray that you humble us. I pray that you give us the courage, God, to... to let you look inside of us to be willing to kind of open ourselves up and be honest. <clears throat> have you examine our hearts? Have you examine our minds? And God, I just pray, Lord, that you would show us. 
Show us what is in us that needs to change, that needs to be removed, God. Lord, bring to, to, to our, our thought, God, our, the, the front of our mind, Lord, maybe people that we need to forgive or people that we need to ask forgiveness from. God, show us if we've in, in any way been rebellious to you or selfish, God, this time of year. And help us, Lord. God, if our relationship with you has been fractured, Lord, let us take the steps to mend that. So our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I don't, I don't know why I feel led to say this. But I feel like someone needs to hear me say that, that, that you've been lackadaisical with all this. That you know that you've been some of the things that we've talked about today. But there's been a lack of desire to change. There's been a lack of care. And you feel like you can keep putting off this whole Jesus thing. And I don't know why God wants me to say that today, but I think someone needs to know that you need to be more urgent and that you need to be more deliberate and you need to take this seriously. I don't know if that speaks to anyone today. Maybe it was for me. I don't know. But Father, humble us. Touch our hearts today. Set us on the right path, God. Be merciful with us. Lord, thank you for your son that died for us even while we were at our worst. Bless those that take communion today. God, bless those that come up to the front and get prayer today. I pray that you hear their prayers. God, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. Bless my brothers and sisters, God. Protect them, Lord. Keep your hand on them, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.